The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, we thank you for the time we have together to study your word and to try to understand some of John Calvin's thoughts as he looks at, uh, at uh, God the Redeemer through Christ. And Lord, it's an appropriate time for us to be considering um, God coming to earth as uh, our Redeemer, as our Mediator. So I pray that we would just celebrate the deep uh, teaching of the word, uh, that our thoughts would would be uh, focused and centered on the greatness of Christ and His work for us and not the froth, frothy, bubble-like stuff that the, that the world is putting out at this time of year, that it has no eternal consequence at all, but that we would have a sense of the weightiness of the gift of Jesus and all that He did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking to uh, continue our study in uh, Calvin's Institutes and uh, looking at the second book, uh, zeroing in on 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 God the Redeemer, or, or specifically, and I jump ahead to uh, chapter 12, uh, not that the first 11 chapters of, of book 2 are not helpful, but I'm trying to, I, I wanted to, just in the interest of Christmas and our meditations on the coming of Christ, jump ahead to uh, the giving of Christ as our mediator. So we're going to be looking at some of these chapters, and I'm not even probably going to go through everything in this handout, because I'd really like to get to the stuff at the end. Isn't that tough? You know, the, the best pages are pages 10 through 14, and I know there's no chance I'm getting to page 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of zip through some of these things and skip over things so that we don't miss Calvin's meditation on Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Those are, those are some great, great words that he's written. So but let's begin. And we're looking at, uh, at God, uh, the Redeemer, or Christ, our mediator. And Calvin makes the point in chapter 12 of book 2 that Christ had to become man to be our mediator. And he lists reasons why it was necessary that our mediator had to be both God and man. Uh, only he who is truly God and truly man could bridge that infinite gulf between God and ourselves. Calvin wrote this, Since our iniquities, like a cloud cast between us and him, had completely estranged us from the kingdom of heaven, no man, unless he belonged to God, could serve as the intermediary to restore peace. But who might reach to him? Any one of Adam's children? No. Like their father, all of them were terrified at the sight of God. Uh, one of the angels, well, they also had need of a head uh, through whose bond they might cleave firmly and undividedly to their God. What then? Well, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. Hence, it was necessary for the Son of God to become for us Emmanuel, that is, God with us and in such a way that his divinity and our human nature might by mutual connection grow together. Otherwise, the nearness would not have been near enough, nor the affinity sufficiently firm for us to hope that God might dwell with us. So great was the disagreement between our uncleanness and God's perfect purity. So really what Calvin's looking at here is there, there is an infinite gap between God and man. Now, there was one anyway, even apart from our sinfulness, because there's an infinite gap between creator and created creature. 
Uh, but even beyond that, we need a redeemer, we need a mediator because we're wicked, we're sinful. And so there is this gap between us and God, an infinite gap. And so we had to have a mediator. We could not have reached up to God. And so God had to reach down to us in Christ. And that's this concept of a, of a mediator. First Timothy 2.5 is a key verse on Christ as mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Calvin writes about this, lest anyone be troubled about where to seek the mediator or by what path we must come to him. The spirit calls him man in 1 Timothy 2.5, thus teaching us that he is near us, indeed touches us since he is our flesh. So what he's doing is he's saying in the incarnation, this is God drawing near to us. The word Emmanuel means that Christ is our mediator. He's come close to us. He is our bridge uh, to an infinite God. The mediator then must be truly God and truly man. Calvin writes, this will become even clearer if we call to mind that what the mediator was to accomplish was no common thing. His task was so to restore us to God's grace as to make of the children of men children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the selfsame Son of God become the Son of Man? And had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us and to make what was his by nature ours by grace. Only the God-man could do that. That's the task that was laid to the mediator. This is the very thing that he had come to do. Calvin continues, For the same reason it was also imperative that he who was to become our Redeemer be truly God and truly man. It was his task to swallow up death. What an incredible statement that is. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It, it was his task to rout the powers of the world and of the air. Who but a power higher than the world and air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie? but with God alone. Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. So what Calvin's doing here is he's heightening the requirements for the office of mediator. What was he trying to do? What was the task in front of him? It's his job to swallow up death. It's his job to make wicked people like us righteous. This is an infinite task and only God could do it. And that's really what he's getting at here. Only God could be our mediator and only man as well. Only he who is truly God and truly man could be obedient in our place. This, I think, is an undeveloped theme in most pulpits these days, that we are seen to be as obedient as Jesus. And, you know, it's something, it's, it really boggles the mind. We think, this is something that I just can't understand. You know yourself through the convicting work of the Spirit to be disobedient. You know that you do not obey the law of God perfectly like you should. And so, you know, if you were to be at, just generally, would you stand under the title of obedient or disobedient? You would choose, I think, by the convicting work of the Spirit to stand under, under the title disobedient. I'm a disobedient person, that kind of thing. Because we know that God demands perfect obedience. And so we ha aren't perfect any given day, any single day. But that's not how God sees us. And that's an incredible thing. God would put us all as Christians under the title obedient. Every last one of us, we are obedient in Christ. But the only way we could be seen to be obedient in Christ is to have a human mediator who came and obeyed on our behalf. And so that's what Calvin is doing here. He says, the second requirement of our reconciliation with God was this, that man 
who by his disobedience had become lost, should by way of remedy counter it with obedience, satisfy God's judgment and pay the penalties for sin. Accordingly, our Lord came forth as true man and took the person and the name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the Father to present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment and in the same flesh to pay the penalty that we had deserved. In short, since neither as God alone could he feel death nor as man alone could he overcome it, he coupled human nature with divine that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of the one to death and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature he might win victory for us. That's incredibly deep thoughts there, really. You know, as God he can't feel death. As, uh, you know, so he has to become man. But if he's only man, he can't defeat it. <laughs> so he has to both feel death and defeat it and that uh, requires an incarnation. It's remarkable, really. Yes, Susan. Yeah, obedient. You know, I, I think he sees us as obedient and at the same time knowing that we have today disobeyed. It's just a, it's that, but that's what imputation means. Really what Calvin's doing is meditating on the word righteous, that we are seen to be righteous in God. He's just bringing that back to the law and saying we are seen to be submissive to God's law. We are seen to be obedient. And so Christ had to take on a human body. He had to live and breathe and walk under the law of Moses. He had to be born of a woman born under the law in order that he might win a righteousness for us because God, God really meant it when he gave us the Ten Commandments, for example. He really did intend that and wanted us to live it and we can't and so Christ came and did it for us. And also we should keep in mind that God sees us as perfectly obedient because such we will be someday when he's done saving us. So um, if, he, if we're going to do the time game and all that, he looks back at Christ, he knows exactly what we are today, but he's looking ahead ahead uh, to the future when we will be, in fact, perfectly righteous. He sees us as what we will be when he is working uh, this righteousness in us. But it's, you know, we're conformed to Christ. That's we're being conformed to that perfectly obedient son. All right, he deals with some objections. And a lot of, a lot of my handout here is Calvin wrestling with objections because that's what a lot of these chapters of the Institutes is. And, you know, I, I want to go through some of it. It's not the, the most incredibly exciting or interesting thing. But just before we do it, I'll say this, it's just part of pastoral ministry, it's part of good teaching to deal with objections and to deal with false teaching and to refute it. And he spends a lot of time uh, doing that in these chapters. You know, people have, I mean, the doctrine of the incarnation is a major target for Satan. And throughout church history, again and again, false teachers have come along and tried to give us different ideas or different thoughts about Jesus, you know, concerning his deity, his humanity, concerning the relationship between those two and all that. And so we just need good, solid doctrine. And we should not imagine that Satan is going to give us a pass in our generation and that there won't be any attacks on the doctrine of the incarnation in our time. We just need to keep a steady stream of good doctrine flowing. And it can't just be positive. We can't just give out those positive statements, you know, God, man, incarnation, mediator, and all that. We have to say, yes, but some have said that it means this, and that's not true for this reason. Others have said it means that. Well, that's not true either for these reasons. And this is what Calvin does. 
So it's just, I think it's just good, solid negative work. You have, you have to do the positive, say what the word of God teaches, and then you have to do the negative, say what Satan says it means, and then refute it. So you kind of have to do both. And Calvin does a good job with that. All right. Um, he establishes in this section that the sole purpose of Christ's incarnation was our redemption. That's the only reason he became man. Like, well, isn't that obvious? Well, it wasn't obvious to some people that he's arguing against. They start to speculate whether Christ would have become man even if there'd been no need for a mediator. Now, some of us are like, what a waste of time. We sinned, done deal. Why even talk about this? I don't know, but they did. And uh, Calvin saw it as a threat and, uh, and took it on. And basically what he says is everywhere that Christ's office, everywhere that Christ's work is described in Scripture, wherever it is throughout the Bible, it always has to do with his mediatorial office. He's always coming to earth to save us from our sins and for no other reason. And so I think in this sense, in the end, you get some good solid meat out of this because what you're doing is you're saying, you know, this is a consistent plan of God that he would be our mediator. Calvin writes this, we well know why Christ was promised from the beginning to restore the fallen world and to succor lost men. Therefore, under the law, Christ's image was set forth in sacrifices to give believers the hope that God would be gracious toward them. After having been reconciled to them through atonement, uh, made for their sins. Surely, since in every age, even when the law had not yet been published, the mediator was never promised without blood, we infer that he was appointed by God's eternal plan to purge the uncleanness of men. For shedding of blood is a sign of expiation. Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Thus, the prophets, in preaching about him, promised that he would be reconciler of God and man. In other words, all the way through, Christ was coming to give a blood sacrifice. Susan, you had something you wanted to say? Susan? Okay. All right. Well, Osiander is one of the teachers and he says, uh, what about the love of God? It just would be loving for him to take on a human body, even if he didn't have to die and all that. So, you know, and you're like, all right, at that point, we 21st century people say, whatever. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, you know, but Calvin does and he's careful. Um, he hated speculation. He really did. Um, and he, and he uh, worked on it, you know, all the time. But what we get out of it is we get to look again at, at the verse and we, we get to see that this was God's consistent plan. I mean, the book of Revelation said that Jesus was the lamb slain before the creation of the world. And, and when you meditate on that, that Jesus was in some sense slain from the foundation of the world, that this wasn't some, you know, plan B or G, you know, they actually did eat. I hoped they wouldn't eat from that tree, but now they did. What are we going to do? I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. And Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He was going to be mediator all along. And I think what this shows also is just think about the mind of Christ before he enters the world. Think of the mind of Christ every time an animal is offered under the law. That's me. I mean, he knew he was under the shadow of the cross from eternity past through all of history right up until he went to the cross. And, uh, you know, it, it's not a light thing. You know, he said, I have a baptism to undergo and how straightened I am until I undergo it. It's, he's been straightened as in a straitjacket from before the foundation of the world. It was a burden, a shadow over his existence until it, he finally did it. So a remarkable love, remarkable, it, it shows the love of Christ in choosing to come into the earth. He came to the earth knowing he would uh, 
shed his blood. And, uh, you know, just an amazing amount of courage. And so Calvin at this point lists many passages that show this very plainly. Isaiah 53, uh, 3, 5, and 6, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, Luke 19:10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And again, in, in Matthew 9:12, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. He entered the world because the world was sick. And that's why he came to be our mediator. All right? In short, the only reason ever given in Scripture that the Son of God willed to take on our flesh and accepted this commandment from the Father was that he would be a sacrifice to appease the Father on our behalf. That's the only reason ever given, to save us. And thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and that repentance should be preached in his name, Luke 24. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for my sheep, this commandment he gave me, John chapter 10. So would Christ also become man if Adam had not sinned? And we get into that. I'm going to go ahead and skip right here. So you can, you can read about it. Let's go ahead uh, on to page five. All right. Christ assumed the true substance of human flesh. Okay. And again, there are heresies on this that Christ is refuting. Heresies that have been, uh, you know, uh, attacking true biblical orthodoxy for centuries before that. Um, so we have to deal with, was he really a man? Was he truly a man? I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses question, was he truly God? I mean, like the creator God, Jehovah God. And so you have to defend at that side. But here, Calvin's turning and defending on the other side. Was he really a human? Was he truly, truly a man? And so here you're dealing with the ancient heresies of the Marcionites who rejected the Old Testament and were Gnostic dualists, denying the materiality of Christ's body. They taught, of course, extreme asceticism. I mean, the, the root of all of that is that material stuff is evil, created by an evil demiurge, they said. You know, that God, the good God, didn't create matter. Didn't, he's spirit. He's pure, like light. But this evil demiurge, uh, another god, created the physical world, and that's where all the problems coming from. And and so as a result, Christ only seemed or appeared to be a human being. He wasn't truly human because he couldn't be God and truly human and have material uh, stuff. And I, by the way, I mentioned this in my sermon on Sunday that John just destroys this by saying the word became flesh. I mean, he he just he, he couldn't have chosen a more offensive word for people who hold that dualistic view flesh you know it's like in in daniel in uh, chapter 7 where these beasts this one beast the second beast is told get up and eat much flesh and you get this sense of like blood and sinews and just stuff drooling out of his mouth and and it's like well that's what god gave to jesus flesh and john chose that word specifically to destroy these heresies but yet here they are i mean centuries after john wrote the word became flesh you still have the marcionites in Calvin's own day, a man named Menno Simons, who in all other respects was an Orthodox teacher, a good teacher of Scripture, an Anabaptist leader, for whom the Mennonites today are, are, are named, kind of pieced together, patched together the Anabaptist movement after their uh, extreme failure at, uh, um, what's the name of that town? Munster, I think, or something like that. Um, at any rate, uh, where they tried to have this Old Testament uh, theocracy and, and just was a total embarrassment. He didn't have anything directly to do with that, but was in all other respects, I think, an orthodox teacher, except in this one sense. He taught an odd doctrine called the celestial flesh of Christ. 
and basically that Jesus did not derive his humanity from Mary, but that God prepared a body for him up in heaven. bit strange. Calvin takes up this debate and deals with it forcefully. He says, Indeed, the genuineness of his human nature was impugned long ago by both the Manichees and the Marcionites. The Marcionites fancied Christ's body a mere appearance, while the Manichees dreamed that he was endowed with heavenly flesh. But many strong testimonies of Scripture stand against both. For the blessing is promised neither in heavenly seed nor in a phantom of a man, but in the seed of Abraham and of Jacob. Nor is an eternal throne promised uh, to a man of heir, but to the son of David and to the fruit of his loins. Hence, when he was manifested in the flesh, he was called the son of David and of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is not only because he was born in the virgin's womb, although uh, created in the air, but because, according to Paul's interpretation, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So what is he doing? He's just looking at these verses, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. He's looking at um, the promises made to Abraham and Jacob and uh, Romans 1.3, very, very plainly that Jesus was a physical bodily descendant of Abraham. That's why you get two different genealogies for Jesus, uh, that Jesus was truly a descendant, a physical descendant of, of David. Uh, Calvin also cites the fact that Jesus constantly called himself the son of man, um, not just man, okay, to say, in effect, I am descended from human beings. I, I'm in the lineage, I'm in a lineage with, with the rest of you, descended from Adam originally. Clearest refutation of all this, of course, I've already quoted Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. Well, so much for that. So much for the heavenly flesh theory. All right. Uh, Calvin then gives a series of scripture passages that speak most plainly of the genuineness of his humanity. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Frankly, and, and you heard me preach through that, that at the end of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, right to the end of the chapter, 14 through 18, is all just completely saturated in, in the humanity of Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's part of this family. It's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Yeah, go ahead, Susan. That's true. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us in him. He drew up before him like a tender root, like a shoot out of dry ground. That's what he was. He was a human being. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But, I mean, see how the devil works, you know? And, and what's amazing is you just can't... I mean, the Scripture's sufficient to refute all these heresies. So they're always going to bump into verses that God set up to say no to that. And so, therefore, it's the job of a faithful teacher of the Word to find the verses and refute the errors. Say so that cannot be because here we have these verses. God's given us a complete Bible. We don't need a 67th book of the Bible to help refute some of these heresies. All of them are covered. And only God could do that, by the way, to think of every attack that Satan would ever make and have ample and sufficient scripture to refute them. But still, there's a certain amount of skill. Like uh, Paul says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed and why? Because there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be times in which you have to marshal the scriptures to deal with false understandings. Okay, against the opponents then of Christ's true manhood, um, he talks about how uh, they misuse scripture. Like, I like this one, Philippians 2, that Jesus tearing the, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, they say, and being found in appearance as a man. So they zero in on these words likeness and appearance. So he isn't really human. He just appeared to be a human, this kind of thing. 
Well, Calvin refutes this by doing a pretty careful exegesis of Philippians 2, which I don't have for you on the page here. But, you know, that's just a faulty understanding. And he didn't say that he wasn't truly human by using the words likeness or, or appearance, etc. Uh, Calvin also addresses their use of 1 Corinthians 15:47. The second Adam is of heaven or heavenly. They use that one. Calvin says, how could we be made like the second Adam Christ if he hadn't been made completely like us in his incarnation? The example of Christ would not have been any encouragement to us all at all, which clear, Paul clearly meant uh, it to be. If you understand what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, he's trying to encourage the Corinthian Christians to stand firm in the ministries they've been given, even to death, right to the end. So he, the application of all his teaching on, on the uh, resurrection is, um, you know, be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what he gives us at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15. He's meaning to encourage us. But if Christ is inherently different from us, some weird heavenly flesh being that's really not connected to us at all, descended from Adam, then how could that be an encouragement? We were like the first Adam in his earthly nature. We're going to be like the second Adam in his heavenly nature. That's all he's saying, that he has this spiritual body, this resurrection. But he was truly physical. He was raised from the dead. And in order to be raised from the dead, he had to be made like us in every way to be truly raised from the dead. That's the point that Calvin's making here. If Christ arose, then we also shall arise from the dead. If we do not arise, neither did Christ arise. There's just a link between us. Since we must acquire victory through Christ, then God declares in general terms that the woman's offspring is to prevail over the devil. Hence it follows that Christ was begotten of mankind. For in addressing Eve, it was God's intention to raise her hopes that she should not be overwhelmed with despair. You know, so many of these things really are given to, uh, to encourage us and so that we would not be discouraged as Satan attacks us, etc. And so we have the human descent and the true humanity of Christ. Christ's descent through the Virgin Mary deals with an absurdity that is so complicated that I can barely describe it to you. But it's the basic idea that uh, because the genealogies always trace out men, that you know true humanity never comes through a woman. He just totally rejects that. Again, these fault, faulty ideas, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip it. You can read what he wrote, but he does a good job refuting it. Uh, Christ was truly, uh, truly man. On page 7 in the middle, I want to give you this one last quote. Oh, absolutely. And he... Uh, that shouldn't be a shock. I, I think as, as, I look, as I look at my preaching, I've got some verses I quote more than any others. And I think I've quoted Genesis 127 probably something like 70 or 80 times from the pulpit. And I'll do it probably another 70 before the Lord takes me. So, yes, uh, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But this is, this is the kind of ridiculousness that Satan kicks up, etc. I think it's very clear that God intended in some mysterious way to bring, you know, the, the seed through a woman from the very beginning. As he said to the serpent, you know, uh, uh, he mentions the seed of woman right there and that he will crush your head and you will bruise his, his heel. All right, uh, middle of page seven. Um, here is something marvelous. Then the son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Now, this is the kind of meditation that's going, that totally boggles our mind. You know, and this is where we touch on that kenosis theory, the idea that Jesus emptied himself of his deity and in divine offices and all that. Those things are not easily, that's an understatement, laid aside. They can't be laid aside. He is God. 
and always will be. He can't cease being what he is. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit upholds the universe that the three in one created. And so Jesus has his task to do. And so we know in Colossians 1, it's only in and through him that the entire universe holds together. And so in some way, he continued to carry on that office while being a baby and while growing as a boy and while being a man on the cross. These are mysteries for us and, the, and no, none of us can, can really face them. I'm going to keep going, Susan, but hang on to your question uh, if you can. But uh, I, I want to I get through these pages and then I'd be happy to answer more questions at the end. All right, now, how do the two natures of the mediator make one person? How do they relate to each other? This is a deep mystery. It's very difficult, actually, to know how they, how they relate. Uh, duality and unity, um, Calvin said this. We ought not to understand the statement that the Word was made flesh, John 1.14, in the sense that the Word was turned into flesh or confusedly mingled with flesh. Rather, it means... Uh, that because he who chose for himself the virgin's womb as a temple in which to dwell, he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. We affirm his divinity so joined and united with his humanity that each retains its distinctive nature unimpaired, and yet these two natures constitute one Christ. He's really just going over you know, the creeds, the, the work that the... the, uh, the uh, Council at Chalcedon worked through all this. They had certain statements that these persons were not confused or mingled together. You know, like what happens when you take red Play-Doh and blue Play-Doh and give it to a child and tell them, absolutely don't mix these, but you know what's going to happen. And you end up with pink Play-Doh, and there it is. I mean, there's just the red is gone, the blue is gone. But now you have what's left is this kind of pink or whatever it is. Purple, thank you, brother. It's been a while since I've done it. Yeah. But uh, at any rate, yeah, we don't have a purple Jesus, okay? We'll go with that, okay? Um, we have fully God and fully man, and you can't understand how the two relate. That's really how it is. He, he didn't lose or mingle any of his, divi- his divinity or, or his humanity. They're just completely fully 100% God, 100% man, and there's no confusion uh, between the two. Divinity and humanity in their relation to each other. Christ's deity is established by many statements that cannot be made of mere human beings. So all you have to do is look at John 8:58, for example, before Abraham was born, I am. This is not a statement a human being can make. I touched on it again in this past Sunday's sermon when John the Baptist, who was clearly born before Jesus, said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. How did John know that? Well, God told him. I mean, how else could we know anything like that? But God told him, the one who comes after you preexisted you. So give him honor because he is your creator, <laughs> something like that. Um, but at any rate, the preeminence goes, and this is a statement cannot, that cannot be made of any human being. Um, Calvin writes, Paul declares him to be the firstborn of all creation who was before all things and in whom all things hold together, Colossians 1. Also, he says that he was glorious in his father's presence before the world began or was made, John 17, 5, and that he is working together with his father, John 5, 17. These qualities are utterly alien to man. Therefore, they and their like apply exclusively to his divinity. So in other words, there are some statements that you just say cannot, they're not in any sense human. They're just God statements. You know, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the world began. Well, before the world began, there weren't any human beings 
at all, but Jesus existed. So these are clearly divinity statements. On the other hand, however, there are many other statements that apply to him only in his humanity. He is called the servant of the Father. Uh, he is said to have increased in age and wisdom, God and man, Luke 2.52. I mean, that's, that's one of those questions, you know. I, I posed it like this. How can an omniscient being grow in wisdom? Well, he can't. <laughs> so that's clearly a human statement. Jesus' growing up in Luke 2.52 is a human statement because all human beings grow. They all develop. They learn things. I mean, we know in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. God's never learned anything. I, that's, that's a mind-boggling statement, but it's true. God never has or never will learn anything. That would imply that before he learned it, he was not omniscient. Or that omniscience is like this finite thing. I was talking to one of my kids recently about infinity. What is it? And what's infinity plus one? It's still infinity. Well, how does that work? You know. And so the thing is, it's like if you could just have a full set of knowledge, then you're omniscient. Well, he was missing one piece of information. He learned it and then he became omniscient. It doesn't make any sense. He's always known what he knows and, and will always know it. Okay, So he's never learned anything and never will. But here's Jesus learning all kinds of stuff. And Mary could testify, I was there when he learned it. <laughs> I taught it to him. You know, and, uh, and Joseph, his, his, uh, you know, Mary's husband, his stepfather or whatever, is, you know, he taught him many things. And Jesus didn't know them before, before Joseph taught, taught him. So it's a mystery. This is just pure, pure human language. Okay? Uh, Jesus said he didn't know uh, the last day, the day uh, of his return, Mark 13:32. Uh, um, so these are all uh, statements of uh, Jesus' humanity. Um, it says that he was seen and handled in Luke 24:39. Okay, that means his body. They touched him and they touched his hands. Touch me and see that a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. All of these refer solely to Christ's humanity. Insofar as he is God, he cannot increase in anything and does all things for his own sake. Nothing is hidden from him. He does all things according to the decision of his will and can be neither seen nor handled. Yet he does, not ascribe, sorry, he does not ascribe these qualities solely to his human nature, but takes them upon himself as being in harmony with the person of the mediator. So what's Calvin doing? He's, he's got a set of verses that could only be God, and they're ascribed to Jesus, and a set of verses that could only be human, and again, ascribed to Jesus. Then thirdly, he's got a category of some that seem to blend the two. All right, of these, probably the most striking is Acts 20, 28. It says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That's an odd expression. All right, this is what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, the blood of God, you know? And it's, and it's an odd thing because blood is human and God is God. And so, but you have this kind of expression, the blood of God. This is probably where, you, you know, we got into difficulty on whole Mary, the mother of God. Because it implies that she kind of gave birth to his deity, which she definitely didn't. And that, that phrase you don't find in the Bible. But you do find blood of God in the Bible. Mingling of these things. Or this one, the Lord of glory was crucified. Lord of glory, definitely a, 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 a phrase of deity. Crucifixion could only happen to a human being. John says the same, the word of life was handled. First John 1, 1, we've handled it. Again, word is deity. And uh, the ability to be handled is humanity, a mingling together. Surely God does not have blood, does not suffer, cannot be touched with hands. But since Christ, who was true God and also true man, was crucified and shed his blood for us, 
the things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred improperly, although not without reason, to his divinity. Here is a similar example. John teaches that God laid down his life for us, 1 John 3.16. Accordingly, there's also a property of humanity. Uh, there also a property of humanity is shared with the other nature. Again, when Christ, still living on earth, said, no one has ascended into heaven, but the Son of Man who was in heaven, surely then as man in the flesh that he had taken upon himself, he was not in heaven. But because the selfsame one was both God and man, for the sake of the union of both natures, he gave to the one what belonged to the other. So again, see the three categories. Verses that could only refer to God, but they're ascribed to Jesus. Verses that could only refer to a human being, ascribed to Jesus. And verses that seem to mingle the two within one person. Again, ascribed to Jesus. The unity then of the person of the mediator. And by the way, this is just why we have these doctrines that we have, the, the full deity and humanity. This is because there are these verses that we're looking at, trying to understand. Same thing with the Trinity and other types. You're trying to put together passages of Scripture into a unified whole. That's what Cal This is the work of theology. That's what Calvin's doing for us here. The unity of the person, the mediator, but the passages that comprehend both natures at once, very many of which are to be found in John's gospel, set forth his true substance most clearly of all. For one reads there, neither of deity nor of humanity alone, but of both at once. He received from the Father the power of remitting sins, John 1.29, of raising to life whom he will, of bestowing righteousness, holiness, salvation. He was appointed judge of the living and the dead in order that he might be honored even as the Father is honored. Boy, think about that. That all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That's an incredible claim. Lastly, is called the light of the world. He's the good shepherd, the only door. For the Son of God had been endowed with such prerogatives when he was manifested in the flesh, even though along with the Father he had held them before the creation of the world, it had not been in the same manner or respect, and they could not have been given to a man who was nothing but a man. It shouldn't surprise us that most of the best of these verses are found in John's Gospel, because John's Gospel is written more than anything to prove the deity of Christ. And so you have a lot of these amazing statements like, you know, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you all this time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, that's right in John's Gospel. That's what John's Gospel is for. And when the Jehovah's Witnesses think by just retranslating the first verse of the Gospel, they can do away with the entire 21 chapters. I mean, that it's the whole structure is Jesus is God. That's what the book is about. And by believing that, you can go to heaven. I mean, that's what the whole... You can't just put a little A in there. Jesus was a God. And, you know, it just doesn't work. You'd really have to change the whole DNA of the entire book. Okay. Until he comes forth as judge of the world, Christ will therefore reign, joining us to the Father as the measure of our weakness permits. When, as partakers in heavenly glory, we shall see God as he is, Christ, having then discharged the office of mediator, will cease to be the ambassador of his Father and will be satisfied with that glory which he enjoyed before the creation of the world. You know, he really meditates a lot, and I didn't bring across... I, I, I'm editing what he did in, in Institutes. Get it and read it for yourself. I mean, it's page after page after page. This is about 90 pages of stuff I'm giving you tonight. So, But he really does meditate on that 1 Corinthians 15 thing when... Christ hands the universe over to the Father so that God may be all in all. And, and what Calvin does with that is basically that's when the, Christ's mediatorial reign and, and his king, king of the kingdom of heaven and all that ends. 
and we step up into an eternal state in which he can just be who he was before the foundation of the world. And so he really uses, like one, one of the quotes here you'll see, the last act of his kingdom is judging the, the, the wicked, the damned. And then he finishes that and then he's done with that. And it's like, well, last was kingdom temporary? No, he's going to say in other places, kingdom's eternal. But those offices are finished when he's done with the separation of the righteous from the wicked and the righteous are perfected in heaven and, and all that. He's done with his whole mediatorial role. I think that's what he's getting at. Okay. Uh, I didn't even give you quotes in this. Uh, more errors, Nestorius, Eutychus, and Servetus, the one he killed. Um, but uh, he lists all of uh, the flaws and the doctrinal errors that he did there. So, what's that, Tom? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yes, we Baptists don't like that very much, nor should we, that he executed a man for bad doctrine. But uh, it's kind of what they did back then, not excusing it in any way, shape, or form, but that's just kind of what, uh, what they did. All right, now let's talk about, um, with the time we have left, uh, Calvin's meditations on Jesus' role as prophet, priest, and king. So this is uh, Book 2, Chapter 15. Uh, these three offices are well known to anybody who studies the Old Testament. They are kind of the major social figures of Israel. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on page 9. Thank you for asking. And then quickly on to page 10. Uh, sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, um, so the prophet, the priest, the king, these were the ones that kind of held society together, along with some other roles. But these were the major roles in the law of Moses. All three of them find their perfection, their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, etc. Calvin takes the prophet first. Uh, scriptural passages applicable to Christ's prophetic office. He says, although God by providing his people with an unbroken line of prophets, never left them without useful doctrine sufficient for salvation. Yet the minds of the pious had always been imbued with the conviction that they were to hope for the full light of understanding only at the coming of the Messiah. This expectation penetrated even to the Samaritans, though they never had known the true religion, as appears from the words of the woman at the well, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. So the, the implication is the prophets were fine. They were great as far as they went. But if you want the full knowledge, the full insight is going to come when the Messiah comes. He's going to bring us into all truth. That was the sense. I think it was absolutely right. For this reason, the apostle commends the perfection of the gospel doctrine, first saying, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers by the prophets. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. By the way, notice he says the apostle... Calvin believes that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I find that interesting. Um, I don't share that conviction, but he may be right. I'm just saying wherever he refers to Hebrews, he talks about the Apostle Paul's writings. But he says, and he's referring to that statement, in the past, God at many times and in various ways spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these final days, or these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So I think Hebrews 1.1 is probably the best Christ as prophet verse. He's the final prophet, God's final word. And therefore, the best of the teaching comes through him. So what is the meaning of um, the prophetic office for us? Well, all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were anointed with oil in the uh, old covenant to set them apart as sacred in that society. Calvin says that. I didn't do the time to research it. I know certainly the king was. I think Aaron was anointed. I, I couldn't remember any times that prophets were anointed. Can you guys help me with that? Can you think of it? Calvin said they were, so he's right, of course. But uh, I just am trying to think. Yeah. 
Well, that's for sure. <laughs> Anointed with a live coal. Um, you know, maybe so. I tend to think of it in terms of oil. Calvin even says it's with oil. So help me out and think about it, work on it, and do your concordance work. I couldn't think of anyone. I, I think definitely the kings were, were anointed, and Aaron was anointed with oil. But anyway, he said so, so we'll trust him. Let's keep moving. So Christ, the Messiah, literally that means anointed one, as the Isaiah passage makes plain, he is our anointed one. I recognize that Christ was called Messiah, especially with respect to and by virtue of his kingship. Yet his anointings as prophet and priest have their place and must not be overlooked by us. Isaiah specifically mentions the former in these words. The spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me because Jehovah has anointed me to preach to the humble, to bring healing to the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberation to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's good pleasure, etc., we see that he was anointed by the Spirit to be a herald and a witness of the Father's grace. This is actually a very good insight here. We usually connect the anointing with the office of king. Remember how Jehu was anointed by that prophet. Um, David was anointed by Samuel, etc. So you connect it with kingship. Messiah is kingship. But here he's saying in Isaiah, he's anointed to proclaim, to preach, to do the works, uh, the office of a, of a prophet. Yes, go ahead. Thank you, brother. So Calvin was right. Vindication for John Calvin. Not that he was too worried about it, dear friends. Not worried at all. But thank you, William. Appreciate it. All right. Um, good job. But at any rate, here the anointing is to the office of prophet. And this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He stands up and says, the Lord has anointed me to preach. And uh, that's the work that he's given as a, as a prophet. Okay. And the anointing of Christ flows off into his people as well. This is an interesting insight by Calvin. He received anointing not only for himself that he might carry out the office of teaching, but for his whole body that the power of the Spirit might be present in the continuation or the continuing preaching of the gospel. This then, sorry, then this anointing was diffused from the head to the members as Joel had foretold, your sons shall prophesy and your daughters shall see visions. So basically we who are called, you know, uh, a kingdom of priests, that kind of language. We don't get anything except through Jesus. And so the anointing that flows to the body comes to us through Jesus. Yeah, go ahead, Susan. It seems strange to insist that the anointing for the prophet be done with oil because, I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. The oil presumably only symbolizes the Spirit and not right. the Spirit. Yeah. So, so the anointing comes through the impartation of the Spirit. It does, and, and even back then it did. Uh, you know, is Saul also among the prophets? Remember, he's on the ground because he's filled with the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit comes upon them. But the link between the oil and the Spirit is made in Zechariah 4, where there's this oil lamp, lamp with golden pipes and all that. And the message of that vision was, not by power nor by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So there's a strong link there between the oil and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is anointed with the, uh, with the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul, in preaching about Jesus, says how God, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and went around proclaiming and doing miracles, etc. All right, so the message Christ brought is the perfection of the prophetic message. It's the best. God reserved the best message for Jesus. Okay? And that is the good news of the gospel. How did Jesus begin his preaching ministry? 
He said, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's how he begins in Mark chapter one. That's the beginning of his preaching ministry. He's preaching the gospel, the good news. So outside Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. Amen. (laughs) Anything that's not in Jesus, you don't need to know it. Okay. All who by faith perceive what he is like have grasped the whole immensity of heavenly benefits. For this reason, Paul writes in another passage, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. This is very true because it is not lawful to go beyond the simplicity of the gospel. And the prophetic dignity in Christ leads us to know that in the sum of doctrine, as he has given uh, it to us, all parts of perfect wisdom are contained. Again, 1 Corinthians 1. Christ has become for us wisdom from God. So all of it is in Christ. Again, in Colossians, uh, you know, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's all that Calvin's giving us here. But, uh, you know, prophets dealt in wisdom. And so the highest final wisdom from God was Jesus. Okay. Secondly, Christ as king. Uh, he immediately gets to the eternity of Christ's dominion. First and foremost, Calvin wants us to know Christ's kingdom is spiritual. I think it's pretty... Anyone who knows anything about Calvin's eschatology knows that Calvin was an amillennialist. What that means is he did not envision, if I can kind of paraphrase Calvin... Christ reclining in Jerusalem on pillows like a Turkish sultan, okay? That just was repugnant to him. That's just what he thought of. And it's like, you know, but that's him and we can debate with Calvin. But he wants you to know the kingdom that he's talking about is essentially, it's a a spiritual kingdom. Should not think in, you know, 16th century political terms like some Italian nobleman who then rises to the level of Holy Roman Emperor or anything. It's not like that. It's a higher kingdom. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. So it's a spiritual kingdom that we're talking about. From this is the benefit and efficacy of the kingdom for all eternity. Now, the eternity of Christ's kingdom is asserted plainly in Daniel 2.44. That's the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, you remember? And the stone was cut up, but not by human hands. Struck the statue and turned it into chaff. The wind blew it away. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. It's interpreted uh, in that passage this way. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. So that's a verse proving the eternity of Christ's kingdom. And you don't just need that one. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be what? no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, there's a lot of verses about this, not just one or two. Interestingly, Calvin shows Daniel 2.44. All right, so this is clearly a spiritual kingdom in the angel's message to Mary in Luke 1, says Calvin. Luke 1, 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So what he's doing there is he's saying clearly that's a a kingdom of forgiveness of sins and of spiritual reconciliation with God. That's the kingdom that will never end. That's what he's saying. So key distinction then, Christ's kingdom is eternal both in its own existence in and of itself and its reign over individual believers. In other words, when you enter the kingdom, he'll be your king forever you yourself will be in the kingdom forever. That's what he's saying. So both individuals and then the thing itself will never end. 
So you find your eternal life there. But this eternity is also of two sorts or must be considered in two ways. The first pertains to the whole body of the church and the second belongs to each individual member. Therefore, wherever we hear of Christ as armed with eternal power, let us remember that that the perpetuity of the church is secure in this protection. Hence, amid the violent agitation with which it is continually troubled, amid the grievous and frightful storms that threaten it with unnumbered calamities, it still remains safe. David laughs at the boldness of his enemies who try to throw off the yoke of God and of his anointed and says, the kings and people rage in vain for he who dwells in heaven is strong enough to break their assaults, Psalm 2. Thus he assures the godly of the everlasting preservation of the church and encourages them to hope whenever it happens to be oppressed. That's very encouraging, isn't it? In other words, the reign of Christ as king is for the benefit of his people to protect them from the onslaught of the devil. That's what he's getting at here. Now, with regard to the special application of this to each one of us, the same eternity ought to inspire us to hope for blessed immortality. For we see that whatever is earthly is of the world and of time and is indeed fleeting. Therefore, Christ, to lift our hope to heaven, declares that his kingship is not of this world. John 18:36. In short, when any one of us hears that Christ's kingship is spiritual, aroused by this word, let him attain to the hope of a better life. And since it is now protected by Christ's hand, let him await the full fruit of this great grace in the age to come. So this, this is right at, this is a, a heat-seeking missile right at worldliness, this statement. Why care about the world and all of its, all the things of this world are passing away. But the man who does the world, uh, the, the will of God lives forever. That's what Calvin's getting at. This is an eternal kingdom, not an, not an earthly one or a worldly one. And so therefore, look at the blessing of Christ's kingly office for us. This is just great writing here, so I quote it at length. We have said that we can perceive the force and usefulness of Christ's kingship only when we recognize it to be spiritual. This is clear enough from the fact that while we must fight throughout life under the cross, our condition is harsh harsh and wretched. What then would it profit us to be gathered under the reign of the heavenly king unless beyond this earthly life we were certain of enjoying its benefits? For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life. Pause. Your best life now, end quote. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. Just go to the Christian bookstore if you can find it there and you'll find all about your best life now, which includes prayers for parking places answered immediately. Shall I continue to read? Yes, let's keep reading what Calvin wrote. I mean, realize in the 16th century how many of God's people were being martyred, how many of them were suffering under terrible uh, difficulties, burned at the stake for the word of God. It was going on in England. It was going on in a lot of places. Very, very difficult time. All right, so he did not, it did not consist in outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all harm, and abounding with delight such as the flesh commonly longs after. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. In the world, the prosperity and well-being of a people depend partly on an abundance of all good things and domestic peace, partly on strong defenses that protect them from outside attacks. In like manner, Christ enriches his people with all things necessary for the eternal salvation of souls and fortifies them with courage to stand unconquerable against all the assaults of spiritual enemies, 
From this we infer that he rules, inwardly and outwardly, more for our own sake than for his. In other words, his sovereignty is for our benefit. That's what he's getting at. Hence, we are furnished, as far as God knows, to be expedient for us with the gifts of the Spirit, which we lack by nature. By these first fruits, we may perceive that we are truly joined to God in perfect blessedness. Then, relying upon the power of the same Spirit, let us not doubt that we shall always be victorious over the devil, the world, and every kind of harmful thing. So he's really saying, don't expect an easy, comfortable, prosperous life in this world, but do expect to be sustained by the Spirit in the inner man through these trials and to be brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. Expect that. That's what he's saying. Con- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the world, the prosperity and well-being of a people depend on abundance of good things. So he's talking about spiritual. Christ enriches his people. So, yes, I mean, the thing about Calvin is, you know, is joy mentioned in the Bible? Do you find joy anywhere? It's going to be mentioned in Calvin. (laughs) It's just the way it is. He's just such a careful verse-by-verse expositor that, you know, it's like, all right, where am I going to go for joy? All right, let's go to Philippians. We'll go see what Calvin wrote about it there. You know, it's, it's going to be in the fruit of the Spirit. It's going to be there. So, yeah, he's talking about it. But it's realistic, too. You know, didn't Paul write sorrowful yet always rejoicing? I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, even in Philippians, doesn't he say that, that Epaphroditus, their messenger, almost died? And God spared him to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Wait, 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 wait. What happened to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, apparently they can go together. Sorrow upon sorrow plus joy, joyful always. I think what it is, it's like sorrowful, yes, but always rejoicing. And so what he's doing is he's trying to say, in effect, let's not listen to the Joel Osteens of the world. And there probably were those in his day and age looking for something right here and now. And he's saying, look, it's not going to come. It comes in the next world ultimately. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles. Content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute. We are called to triumph. Such is the nature of his rule, that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. Now he arms and equips us with his power, adorns us with his beauty and magnificence, enriches us with his wealth. These benefits then give us the most fruitful occasion to glory and also provide us with confidence to struggle fearlessly against the devil, sin, and death. Finally, clothed with his righteousness, we can valiantly rise above all the world's reproaches. And just as he himself freely lavishes his gifts upon us, so may we in return bring forth fruit to his glory. Isn't that great? wish I could write like that. But anyway, that's, that's tremendous. Spiritual nature of Christ's kingly office is the sovereignty of Christ and the Father. Christ's kingdom lies in the spirit, not in earthly pleasures or pomp. Hence, we must forsake the world if we are to share in his kingdom. Christ is anointed not with oil or aromatic resins, but with the fullness of the Spirit of God. And this is a key insight. Christ's sovereignty over human history, and we hinted at this a moment ago, is for the benefit and final glory of his church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. In other words, Christ's sovereignty is for our benefit. He sovereignly rules over the events of this life to achieve his end in us. And you can say, well, isn't that interesting? We still have lots of trials and difficulties. Yes, he wants you to. James tells you what to do when you have those trials and difficulties. Those are the very things that are achieving his purpose, and that is to conform you to Christ. That's what he's getting at here. Um, We only have time for maybe no more.
So let's see. Oh boy, good thing. Christ is priest. Let's finish with that just for the match set and we'll be done. Christ, prophet, priest, and king. He's also priest. Purpose number one is reconciliation. I'm on page 14. Now we must speak briefly concerning the purpose and use of Christ's priestly office as a pure and stainless mediator. He is by his holiness to reconcile us to God. But God's righteousness, sorry, God's righteous curse bars our access to him. And God in his capacity as judge is angry toward us. Hence, an expiation of purification must intervene in order that Christ as priest may obtain God's favor for us and appease his wrath. Thus, Christ, to perform this office, had to come forward with a sacrifice. For under the law, also, the priest was forbidden to enter the sanctuary without blood, Hebrews 9, 7, that believers might know, even though the priest, uh, as their advocate, stood between them and God, they could not propitiate God unless their sins were expiated, Leviticus 16. Now, the fact of Christ's priestly office is plainly established in Hebrews 7. The whole chapter lays out this premise. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. God willing, we'll get there soon in Hebrews. But he is a priest, and he is our high priest, and he offers his own blood. The second purpose is that he might pray for us, intercede for us. I just love that hymn. Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. Isn't that, that's it. That's the priestly ministry right there. His own blood he offers to the Father, and it's, uh, it's enough. It's sufficient. So intercession. It follows then that he is an everlasting intercessor, through his pleading, we obtain favor. Hence arises not only trust in prayer, but also peace for godly consciences, while they safely lean upon God's fatherly mercy and are surely persuaded that whatever has been consecrated through the mediator is pleasing to God. Andy Wynn, would you close us in prayer, please? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.